This is the Monday, October 10th, 2016 episode of the History Authors Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine returns to the days of the Revolutionary War. From the perspective we last visited in Christopher Stevenson's The Drum of Destiny. That is, from a child caught up in the fight for independence. That aspiring drummer boy, orphan Gabriel Cooper, aimed to introduce young readers to life as an indentured servant. But as hard as life would have been for a boy like Gabe, he had an advantage built in, his skin color. Not so for Isabel and Curzon, two of the African-American children we'll meet in Laurie Holtz Anderson's trilogy, The Seeds of America, which includes Chains, Forge, and the just-released blistering conclusion, Ashes. Laurie Holtz Anderson is a New York Times best-selling author who has earned numerous American Library Awards and State Awards. Chains was a National Book Award finalist and also made the Carnegie Medal shortlist in the United Kingdom. You can read more about the accolades she has earned and check out her blog at the website madwomaninthefarest.com. Note that her middle name, Holtz, is spelled H-A-L-S-E. While you're over at her website, you can also connect to her on social media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Tumblr, and Instagram. Okay, now that we know who will be our tour guide on this trip to the times that tried men's souls, and the souls of women, children, and slaves as well, let's meet Lori Holtz Anderson and reap the story she has sown in The Seeds of America Trilogy. I'm joined on the line by Lori Holtz Anderson, author of the Seeds of America Trilogy. Those books are Chains, Forge, and Ashes. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Oh, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity. Well, your readers are going to be thanking me too, because as I researched your books, I saw how much passion there was. I saw it firsthand in my office, just leaving your book out there on my desk that the people are drawn to it. They said, oh, you have the third one. This is awesome. <laughs> and they recognize it. At madwomaninthefarest.com, I also see many of these things. I've gotten to know you through your website. You list among your passions American history and advocating for children and teenagers. Now that you've completed the Seeds of America trilogy, has the degree to which you've inspired young people exceeded your expectations? Has it met it? Are you surprised at all? Isabel and Curzon have kind of gone out into the world and made their own way. So as a writer, I wondered, how do you critique yourself? Oh, what a fascinating question with 8 million layers to it. <laughs> How do you critique yourself? Um, 
for me, I think that's you know a very individual question. For me, the question is answered every day. You know, that's sort of the end of the day question. My father raised me to do that, where you reflect back on what did I do right today? What could I have done better? Where did I screw up? What am I going to do tomorrow? And I have to say, I feel like I'm at about the halfway point in my career. And I'm very pleased with what my books have done out into the world. But I think that a lot of that has to do with the community of readers, the community of teachers and librarians and parents who have been open to the kind of books that I'm writing. I tend to write about hard subjects, people facing really tough stuff. And, uh, you know, not all readers respond to that, but certainly, I don't know, I'm feeling a shift underneath my feet. And it seems that people are more interested in having honest conversations about hard things now. And it's a privilege to be a part of that. It seems something you take very seriously. When I read your blog and you reflect on it, you are sensitive to that. And that's a muscle almost that you have to work on where I know I always tell people who ask me about writing young people, you can read those top 10 lists, right? Mm. Here are the 10 things you should do and shouldn't do as a writer. Mm. But then you have to develop the ability to judge what really works for you because not everything will. And you seem to be very conscious of that. You can see the progression through these books. It's not as if you put the first one out and then just had a formula and went to the second. You changed it up. You know, I think that the happiest writers that I know, and I include myself in that group, are the people who have a lot of integrity in that what they're writing is a reflection of what's living in their heart. And I do know some people who, you know, they, they find a formula writing things that maybe are a little bit lighter, and there's certainly no shame in that. There's a, there's a lot of readers, and at different times in your life, you need different kinds of books. But for me, I was always that serious little kid, kind of quiet, who was pondering the big questions in life. You know, why do people do these things and how do we make this better? And I think that I've been able to explore those things in my books. In 1776, speaking of exploring, we start this exploration with Isabel and her sister Ruth. We eventually meet, as she meets, the young patriot Curzon. They've only ever known a life as slaves. I've heard you say that Isabel's stubborn streak is something you share, but by necessity, somebody in that position has to bend or she'll be punished or even crippled. And you make that clear early in the book. She recalls an example of somebody being beaten and having an arm broken. I guess it's actually relayed to her. So how do you meet that challenge of writing her character as independent, even in the face of slavery's literal change? Yeah, you know, it's the research and the writing of these books has taught me so much about the world and taught me so much about our history as Americans. It's really changed me. You know, it, it's interesting just looking at writing, you know, as writing classes and people who want to be writing were, you know, told to look for characters that are intriguing, you know, multifaceted, but that are facing huge odds. And I cannot think of any people's who have faced harder odds and just almost impossible circumstances than the Americans' children and adults who were held in slavery, whose families were held in slavery for generations. I think that their survival is a testimony to the greatness and the vastness of the human spirit, um, their abilities to overcome the horrors that were thrown at them for generations. I stand in awe of those families. And being stubborn, I think, is often criticized as a bad thing. And I think it's frankly one of the better life qualities you can have. 
Yeah, I think if there was more stubbornness, probably in the pursuit of a good cause, and we're not talking about people turning on the fire hoses because exactly. they don't want little girls like Isabel to go to school. That's right. But or Afghanistan today. I mean, it's not That's something a right. long time ago. But you have all that in your head. Okay, she's starting to write the book, everybody. She's opening the first blank word page. Mm -hmm. And you're starting chains without making any mention of race, though. You introduce Isabel Finch. Okay, this is our narrator. Mm -hmm. We're just our first handshake with this character. And you build that first scene to a final line where you reveal she's owned his property. What was going through your head? What was your creative process there when you talked about bringing the reader in? Are you familiar with the work of the renowned children's author, Walter Dean Myers? No. Walter Dean Myers passed away in, I believe, 2014. Shortly before he died, he penned an exquisite important essay in the New York Times about the lack of representation of all children in children's literature. But aside from that, he's one of the most important writers of children's literature. Walter was probably about 15 years older than I am, so sort of a big brother. We met years ago when we each had a book that was a finalist for the National Book Award. And Walter taught me so much not only about writing of children's literature, but our responsibility to our readers. And he talked to me a lot about the perspective of characters. And if you are an African-American who's held in slavery, your worldview is that of, you know, your default is people who look like you and your family. So you don't have to identify yourself as, oh, I'm a black person, because you just are. But you, when you see somebody who's white, that's different. And, and in most cases, that's a threat. So that's something that you identify. All of my books so far have been intensely first-person narrators. So we see that I tried to create a world and create a narrator that would be consistent within that world about how she saw things. So that, that might be a surprise, especially for people who are white, who generally read books with white narrators. And if they haven't really confronted their own privilege as white Americans, they're just walking around with that default setting. And I hope that maybe my book can help those people see themselves in a new light and grow their hearts a little bit. You're talking about the perspective in the second book, Forge, which mm. I have here. And I wanted to just read one thing from it because it comes perfectly on the heels of what you just said about the point of view. And Ordinarily, you'd try not to make a lot of noise, right? But I'm going to let everybody hear me opening the book. That's, <laughs> that's where the magic happens, everybody, right? When you open a book, it's an that's exciting right. moment, right? Dive in. And now in this one, Curzon is the point of view character. And he describes this sergeant bowing to him. And I thought that this was something that was very striking. And you have to really get to it. It's page 40. If you have the book at home, you can have that magic moment and open it right now and look at this a little bit differently, just even the way you structure the paragraphs and the, the sentences. This is Curzon again thinking, he bowed at the waist to me. Gentlemen bowed out of courtesy, out of respect. I'd seen thousands upon thousands of bows whilst serving Judge Bellingham and later his son. They bowed when greeting each other, Upon taking their leave, they bowed to ladies and to their elders. They did not bow to slaves or thieves or ditch scoundrels. But Sergeant Woodruff bowed to me, and I was all of those things. That is just fantastic, and you do a lot of heavy lifting there. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Last night I finished reading Colson Whitehead's new book, The Underground Railroad. 
And it is far and away my favorite book of 2016. And I think it's one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. There's a similar scene in the book where a white woman acknowledges with you know, a gesture of respect one of the main characters in that book, an enslaved woman who is self-liberated, whose name is Cora. And I think that I kind of was affirming for my choices there to see Mr. Whitehead make the same choice. And it gets really to the heart of, especially in the revolutionary time period, that struggle for what we now call you know, equalities and freedoms, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words have driven the creation of an entire nation and a na national consciousness of the American dream in the world. Yet when those words were written and the foundation document of a, the war for independence, they did not include all people. And this is still a struggle that we are fighting in America every single day today, because there are still Americans who are not willing to extend that respect, that yes, we are equals and we deserve equal justice and freedom today. It's an ambitious project for one book, much less a trilogy. And I wondered if you started with the idea first or did Isabel and Curzon sort of plop themselves in your lap and say, hey, tell my story. Well, no, you know where it really started? It started in my first historical novel, Fever 1793, which came out in the year 2000, which looks at the early Federalist period after the revolution in my adopted hometown of Philadelphia, an epidemic that really did ravage the city. And I just thought telling the story of that time period through the lens of that incident, that epidemic, was an interesting thing. In the course of the research of that book, I found out that my then hero of all times, Benjamin Franklin, had been a slave owner. This is the late 1990s I was researching this. I was so shocked by that fact, because nobody ever told me that when I was in fourth grade, that I started to read about African Americans during the colonial period, just so I could understand, because I was just so baffled how good Benjamin Franklin have owned people. It lets you down. It's tough when a historical figure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It ripped my guts out and was the beginning of an incredible journey. So that is where I started from, trying to understand just for my own purposes, what was it like back then? And then I wrote a book, a nonfiction picture book called Independent Dames. It's used in schools. It looks at the activities of 88 women and girls who were active players during the revolution. And in the course of that, I came across the stories of some enslaved women and girls who, you know, had to make choices. And I started to think about, well, you know, would they choose the loyalist side? Would they choose the patriot side? Which then led to the writing of Chains. I only considered Chains as a standalone book. I wanted to write about New York City during the revolution because that's rarely discussed. It's usually all Boston, Boston, Boston. And I turned in the book to my wonderful editor of that novel, a gentleman named Kevin Lewis, who's a dear friend now. And after Kevin read it, he said, well, what happens next? Yeah. And I was like, oh, you son of a gun. I'm going to have to write two more books. I actually went back in with that draft that I sent to Kevin, and I tinkered with the ending a little bit of change to open up the arc of the story so we could then wonder what happens next. And then that led to the writing of Forge and Chains. I like talking to a children's author because we get to think back to our childhood as readers, as young readers. Hopefully somebody did put that first magic book in your hands. 
And as I was researching you for this interview, I heard that as a kid yourself, you challenged a teacher about symbolism and you told her it didn't exist. So I wonder if you'd tell us that story briefly. I can hear the children listening, maybe giggling a little bit. As a writer in full now, how do you calibrate your symbolism (laughs) so that you ensure that kids like yourself will catch your meaning, but you're not hitting anybody over the head for the adults, especially that are also enjoying your books? Exactly. That's quite the balancing act. That's why you write, at least the way I manage that is by doing many, 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 many drafts. And I'm stubborn in holding myself to the highest standard. It doesn't get, which is why there's so long between my books. It doesn't get turned in just because there's a deadline. It gets turned in when it's right and when it's finished. Um, I was a mouthy teenager, can we say? I was not the nicest person when I was 15. Thank heaven I was surrounded by very, very patient adults, including and especially my teachers. Oh, you're lucky. I wasn't oh, so lucky. Yeah, no, I was, <laughs> or maybe I just ignored them all the time. So there's a, a part too. But I was very frustrated in high school because I loved reading. I came to reading late because I had a bit of a learning disorder. But once I finally mastered that, again, with the help of wonderful public school teachers, I became omnivorous, reading everything all the time. And then I got to high school, and they were making me read books that I just didn't connect with. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, they made us analyze the books. And I just, we were reading Scarlet Letter, and Ms. Maroon, my poor beleaguered English teacher, was just beating the life out of the book. And I raised my hand. I said, I think you're making this symbolism stuff up. I think that it didn't exist. It doesn't exist. And we should just be given permission to enjoy the story. And then she assigned me and everybody else in class another essay to do (laughs) because of my big mouth. So that was an important lesson. And I also like to tell kids that I think that at, at some, however, I don't know what your cosmic understanding is, but... I think God at that moment looked down and laughed and said, let's make that one into an author because <laughs> <laughs> then she'll use symbolism every day. Yeah, it's nice to have that as a circle to come together. Yeah, he yeah. puts that in you. And it's good too because you did say about being a quiet child and as much as we chuckle about that now, it can really crush you. I mean, a teaspoon of criticism from a teacher or a parent, if it's really negative or offhanded, it can change the whole course of your life. And it's nice that she did try to turn it into a positive there, although I'm sure it didn't make you popular. It did not feel like a positive (laughs) moment, I must admit. I've reflected often on that moment. I'm thank you for bringing it up. I've gone back and and there's, I think teachers, at least the teachers that I meet when I'm out in the road and at conferences now, this newer, younger generation of teachers, man, are there some smart people out there with great compassionate hearts. And first of all, they're putting books now into the hands of teens and children that are more relatable than the books that were written, you know, in the late 1800s that myself as a 15 year old really didn't connect with. But also they're smarter about how they're teaching the books and allowing students a little bit more leeway in terms of their own interpretations. Uh, Symbolism is, I like to call it a secret code. It's all it is. It's like Easter eggs in a video game. And you can read my books and never think for one moment about what are the symbols, capital S, and you can enjoy them. But if you read the book and figure out my secret codes, how to crack those secret codes, then you enjoy it at another level. 
in my own reading, I rarely see, and if it's if I'm loving the book, I rarely see the symbolism on a first read. That's why I'm starting Colson Whitehead's book all over again, because I'm like, whoa, this man <laughs> is a writer. This author just took me on a journey, and I want to go back and savor it and understand every step on that journey. So I'm going to go back with a highlighter, you know, and I'm going to read more slowly. And it's going to be so much fun because I'm going to break those codes. I'm going to figure out the secrets. So now I look upon symbolism as a reading and writing adventure. It's not the negative that it was when I was younger. And people can read the book and enjoy it. And that thing about hitting over the head, sometimes I'm sure you have symbolism that's so clear that you really want somebody to get it. I think I'm very clever. And that's another one of that adjusting that muscle. Yeah. I interviewed author Sheila Myers, who writes about the Adirondacks and the Gilded Age. Her books were Imaginary Brightness, and the recent one was Castles in the Air. And she has a third one on the way. And the first time I interviewed her, I said, you have this great symbolism. And I thought I was a very clever reader. Mm. And she said, no, that, that's not what I meant there. But that's great that you saw it. <laughs> then in the second one, she had this whole thing. The father, William Durant, who was a real robber baron, real railroad tycoon. And he had died and left his son. And his son has this whole thing after he dies where there's this pig. And the pig, he's trying to, they're trying to slaughter it for one of the big festivals. And then the pig ends up, even after he kills it, it burns down the building. And it says, even beyond the grave, this pig is still tormenting me. And I thought, oh, well, that's really clever. She put that in because it's a mirror of his father. And nope, I asked her again. And she said, you're always finding symbolism. <laughs> and I know I took a poetics class once and he said, it's what you see. And this was in college by this point. And he said, it's invoking it. But you, especially with your readers, if you're going to have an African-American child read the book and a white child and an Asian child, they all may say some different symbolism that they have in there. Even things like colors, mm -hmm. white and black, the colors of mm -hmm. clothes and things like that, they are different. Mm -hmm. So you can't get too hung up in it, but you have to do just enough. Well, there are several aspects to literature that I consider quite magical. And I mean that seriously, like magical in that it is a little bit beyond the ken, uh, the knowability of people to really deeply understand. And I think this is because we are hardwired for story. It is deep in our DNA. And one of the joys of enjoying books is that when the book leaves my hands and it goes into the world, it obtains a life of its own. Each reader brings their own history. So each reader comes away with a slightly different experience. And it's so much fun to hear, you know, what, like, as you're saying, readers who find things in my books that, well, golly, I sure wasn't thinking about that consciously. You know, if you were a PhD student, you could write a dissertation about what's intentional and not intentional. And honestly, I guess you could if you wanted, but that's not as important to me as the fact that human experience, when braided through storytelling, connects us in very deep and magical and affirming ways. And the thing about the adults enjoying it too, Kirkus set of chains. For many readers, it will be one of the best novels they have ever read. And I noted it doesn't say young readers. It doesn't say beginning readers. It doesn't say middle grade or anything like that. It just says all readers. And that's a challenge that you meet with the book. I have a little illustration of that. 
And that is that a colleague of mine saw the proof for the final book, Ashes, on my desk. This is something I alluded to earlier. He said, oh, hey, that's the book that's been attached to my daughter Madison's hand for the past week. Wait a minute. It's not. It just looks similar. And and uh, he, then he later explained, he said, well, if she puts it down, his wife picks it up. So she's holding the book and making sure she reads it until the very end. So I let him borrow it. And then I asked Madison to record a couple of questions, which you've been kind enough to answer. And again, a real reader perspective. And I thought that what she said was interesting. So let's hear her first question, which has to do with this idea of your evolution from that quiet student to the writer you are today. Great. The past two years, two of your books, Twisted and Chains, have been required summer reading novels for my high school advanced slash honors English classes. As an aspiring writer, I'm curious as to how it feels to have reached a level where those who actually teach others to write use your writing and works to do so. Well, first of all, thank you, Madison, for the kind words and for that great question. Honestly, it's kind of baffling. (laughs) One of the weird things about writing is, at least for me, I don't take my career very seriously because it doesn't matter how many books I've written or how well they've done. When I sit down to write a new book, I feel like I'm starting all over from scratch and I know nothing. I feel like I'm Jon Snow. You know nothing, Jon Snow. And so then I find out people are teaching my books. It is incredible honor, an incredible honor. It's just like, I, this is so far beyond anything I ever dared dream of in terms of my career. Although, you know, every time I get to speak to conferences of English teacher, I do always bring up my own experience as a kid who got a little cranky about some certain English teacher assignments. So I plead with them to ease off sometimes concepts of symbolism and, you know, dissecting books (laughs) and making sure that their students have the opportunities to enjoy a book, not to worry about a test, but to enjoy a book and to have conversations with their friends, because that's one of the most important ways to help young minds develop. Especially because no book is the same to every pair of eyes that reads it, just like paintings. I think people understand it much more with art that someone will get something different than they do out of written word art. Bingo. I agree 100%. As a student of quote unquote real history myself, I love it when people have cameos in fiction and not just a General Washington or Nathaniel Green or anybody that's on money or even necessarily some big hero. And we do tend to focus, as you said, people that look Mm -hmm. like us. I probably know a lot more about Greek mythology than somebody who's from Ireland or, again, somebody who's from Asia. So this is something you do in your book, and I always love those. It's like meeting an old friend. You said about Ben Franklin. If I open a book and I find, hey, here's somebody who I like from the Gilded Age, I'm thrilled. And I liked hearing that also from Madison because she's discovering the excitement of that for the first time through your trilogy. So here's her question on that method that you used about one of our local New Jersey guys that you invited into Seeds of America. In your book, Chains, you mentioned Dr. Van Buskirk, page 109, from Bergen County, which is where I'm from, and he was indeed an actual loyalist. Are any of the other characters and places real people and places as well? If so, was researching and fact-checking to make sure everything was accurate a lot of work? Oh, what a great question, and I'm so glad she picked up Dr. Van Buskirk. I put him in the book because one of his descendants, Professor Judith Van Buskirk, 
believe she's at SUNY Cortland in, in uh, New York State, was a very generous academic researcher who helped me out in my work on chains. I think she turned her dissertation into a trade book called Generous Enemies that looks at the conditions within New York City and particularly those of loyalists. And Dr. Van Buskirk is one of her ancestors. So I wanted to kind of give a little bit, a nod of the tricorn to Judith, Professor Van Buskirk. I wanted as much as possible to put real people in the stories, but I have a hard and fast rule that if I'm using real people, I can only have them do and say things that I have evidence that proves that they indeed did and said those things, that they were at the right time in the right place. In Forge, as Corzon and his friends in the Continental Army are moving south after the Battle of Saratoga on their way to the winter encampment in Valley Forge, they stop in, I believe it's Kingston, New York, and they come across an enslaved couple who are held in bondage by a Dutch militia general. And then they interact with this uh, Baumfree is the gentleman's name, and I can't remember his wife's name right now. But those two people were living people held in slavery in Kingston. After the American Revolution, they had a daughter, and that daughter grew up to become Sojourner Truth. Wow. Talk about a cameo. Yeah, right? So, so and, this, <laughs> and that's one of the things I think I love most about history. It's the connections. And they show you how deeply woven our lives are together to each other. And the deeper you go into it, the more fascinating it becomes. And that's why I'm such an advocate for improving and trusting our children and improving the history that we teach them. I think that we've sort of cornered ourselves into teaching history as a very dry topic. And I know that when you give kids stories about what really happened, as opposed to just making them memorize the dates and the battle titles, and you explain the situations and ask them to think about what would you have done in this situation, A, you help them mature you know, spiritually and emotionally as well as intellectually, and then they will remember their history. So I'm sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but Madison's questions are amazing. And to make it back to the research part, yeah, that's why it took such a long time to write these three books, ah. years and years and years of research. And also because I believe that people who write for children need to be held to a higher standard than people who write for adults because our kids are going to read our historical fiction and go, oh my gosh, this really happened. So I have had all of my historical novels vetted, examined by academic historians who specialize in the subject matter. So for those listeners who might care about those things, when you read my acknowledgments, you can see the people that I was working with. And the New York Times said of book two, Forge, quote, a return not only to the colonial era, but to historical accuracy, unquote. And I thought that that was a great compliment. Again, not quite symbolism, but just something in passing that there is so much behind those words, because when you start reading, I find anyway, you can lose a day just finding off on yeah. a tangent one character that you want. So it does require some discipline, but it's also a great job. Oh my gosh. If if somebody would just pay me to research, I don't think I'd ever write another book. <laughs> when I was researching Forge, I went to the Valley Forge archives, and I hope someday somebody in the federal budget will find a little bit of money to support those archives better. But there's a small room that has a lot of data and I uncovered a letter that was written by a Patriot officer to his wife 
in which he described one of the women, enslaved women at the camp who was a cook, and her name was Malvina, M-A-L-V-I-N-A, and he described the yellow turban that she wore. And when I read that letter, I welled up with tears. I stopped because so many Americans who were held in slavery lived lives where they they weren't allowed their names. We don't know their names. Their lives were stolen for the profit of people who looked like me. And somehow I had been graced with this little bit of information about this woman named Malvina who, who wore a yellow turban and she lived you know, she was alive. She was an American. She was at Valley Forge, which is just a few miles away from where I live now. So I, I managed to put her in one scene mention of her name and of her yellow turban, um, standing with a group of people during the celebration uh, that, that they held at Valley Forge in May uh, when the news of the French Alliance was announced. And when you're researching to try to write a story in fiction, but you stumble across facts of living people whose lives made a difference to the world in which we inhabit today, for me, it's a kind of a, a feeling of awe, a feeling of awe that this history, it's alive. If you understand deeply the roots of racial injustice in America, you know that we really haven't gone nearly far enough. And I think that bringing these real stories to life is going to be a way to help help the country figure out where we need to go next. And somebody like Malvina would only have been an ex in the census. This is always a challenge for my wife doing genealogy research for people is mm -hmm. you hit what they call the wall. I mean, that's it. Right. And then you read some what comes later and say, well, they were happy to demand that they be counted towards the census, towards their representatives' votes right. in the Senate and in the House. Well, the Senate would have already been too, but and yet yeah. not for just something as basic as having your own name. And right. if somebody who is a different color from you doesn't write you down, it's just as right. if you never existed. So right. I think it's great that you include, not in a heavy-handed way, this was their world. Yeah. So this is something that you pick up on little things like just mentioning at the end of that first scene of the first book that she's owned his property. Mm -hmm. We're listening to author Lori Holtz Anderson, author of the Seeds of America trilogy, which includes the book Chains, Forge, and the newly released Conclusion, Ashes. And it's a little bittersweet to say conclusion. Uh, Publishers Weekly writes of today's guest, quote, Her masterful storytelling weaves themes of friendship, politics, love, and liberty into a deeply satisfying tale, unquote. Those are all difficult and complex themes. If you aren't tired of talking about symbolism or put on the spot <laughs> by that, theme is even more ephemeral. But with readers as young as 10 or as old as adults, as we said, you know, people that are older than us that are in their 70s will pick it up maybe for a grandchild and read it first. Mm -hmm. I'm at a question of balancing that. Because you want to put yourself in Curzon's shoes or maybe his lack of shoes when he's wintering at <laughs> Valley Forge. Yeah. You want to deal with his emotions for Isabel so that everybody in 2016 can follow the subtext and see that relationship grow. How did you tackle that? Well, first of all, if I can flash back for a moment to the word theme, this is why we need English teachers because honestly, I'm not quite sure I still understand what a theme is. I never set about writing a book thinking of what the theme is going to be. I do think that, you know, those larger 
issues, friendship, things like that, that I really leave in the trustworthy hands of my readers to pick out, you know, those notes. If we think of a theme as maybe a note in a chord, those notes that really resonate within that reader's heart, that's, you know, whether it's the friendship or the struggle for freedom or for love or family or identity, that's beyond my ken. Um, <laughs> you know, for I, I think that one of my ground understandings about life is that we all experience the same emotional things throughout history. We want family. We need love. We have things that happen to us that are horrible and frightening. Um, friendship is a, a great balm to many, many sadnesses. People die. There's justice sometimes. There's injustice more frequently. As you're going through the transitions from childhood to adulthood, you know, you're sometimes all over the map and life is, feels very, very intense. And then eventually you grow into maturity if you're lucky and you have time to reflect back on what you've experienced. The key for me was to find enough research and to check in not only with historians to make sure that my history was accurate, but also to check in with people who specialize in the representation of African Americans in children's literature to make sure that what I thought I understood about these feelings and emotional sets was indeed what they believed to be true as well. I think that when you're writing outside of your own experience, a writer is first called to be humble, very humble, and acknowledge that you know not much and that your goal is to put aside your preconceived notions and absorb what it is you can find out there. That's big enough. <laughs> Those challenges are large enough. And then you layer onto that the need to you know, figure out a character arc and in historical fiction to weave your character's inner and outer arc with the arc of actual historical events you know, and craft narrative scenes. And there's a lot of layering that goes on in these kinds of books. And if you've done it right, if you've brought together nuanced characters with layered levels of conflict, internal and external, just the way that the human condition is, you can't help but write a story that has some themes to it. But I will leave it to people who are smarter than me to figure out exactly what those themes are. It reminds me of Winston Churchill, who sounds like he was a student that we would have been friends with if we were all in <laughs> class together. And he sends back that pudding later in life, and he says, this pudding has no theme. And I, I always think of that when people talk about theme, because I said, what a, what a confusing and great thing to say. And by then, he's an adult, and he's yeah. you can't challenge him, possibly. Oh. He says it has no theme. It must not, it must not have whatever theme is in it. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. In book two, Forge. Curzon takes over as narrator. He passes as a free African-American, a slave freed and now master of himself. He joins the Continental Army. I wondered when I picked it up, maybe a little bit like your editor, wondering what happened next. And I said, well, this has changed. You know, why, why change the point of view? How did you do that? What was the choice there? And how did you ensure that readers who had grown so attached to Isabel stuck with Curzon? Maybe it wasn't a concern, but I was curious. 
Well, it was a bit of a concern, to be honest. I took a leap there, and, and my readers leapt with me because that's how awesome they are. <laughs> the first story, uh, Chains, is told from Isabel's point of view. So we have the point of view of a child held in slavery in a domestic setting. So she's within the household in an urban setting in New York City for the most part in that story. And so we see the war through her eyes, and she interacts with people who are both patriots and people supporting the British Army loyalists as well as British officers. But then as I was reading more and more about the army, I saw how young most of the continental soldiers and militia soldiers were by the time you get to 1777. You know, the war begins in 1775 with the middle-class, middle-aged white guys in Boston going, yeah, I don't want to pay taxes. And then, you know, as wars do, it lasted much longer than anybody thought. And so you have this army of young, very, you know, often 10-year-old drummer boys, lots of teenagers in that army, lots of guys that would be in high school or college today, supported by women who were also young, many of them. And I thought, wow, first of all, I write, you know, there's, there's some of my readers would have been continental soldiers if they were transported back in time 240 odd years. And then I wanted to know what did that feel like to be a young man? not much more than a boy in that army. The kids who joined the army in time for that winter encampment in Valley Forge, many of them joined for the reasons that our young men join the army today. They don't have much. They're coming from families that don't have many resources. And the army seems like it offers them a leg up. You know, they're going to devote their service. They're going to serve their country and hopefully get out with a good background, maybe with some education. And those were the kids I was thinking about as I uh, made course on my narrator. And he's more idealistic than Isabel. That was fun, too. Isabel's a little, she's cynical. She's very practical. She sees the world quite clearly. Corzon is that young person who is entranced with this idea, the promise of the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, the bigger challenge for me was I thought, oh, gosh, everybody knows the story of Valley Forge. And it took me a while to drill down deep into the archives, into the primary sources, the journals of the different battalions and regiments at Valley Forge, the correspondence with Congress, you know, the supply lined issues to find, you know, what, what are the real stories going on deeper here? When I came across the discussion of the execution of some deserters at Valley Forge early on in the encampment, that's when stuff got real. And I went, okay, this, now we're getting down to a layer that is not often discussed. And now I can begin to see my story take shape. And as far as just from the writer's perspective, I wanted to put you on the spot and ask if you can pick which one you enjoyed writing for more, <gasps> or is it like asking you to pick a favorite among your beloved pre-allergy cats? Yeah, or my beloved children. It kind of depends on who's been nicer to me recently. Um, uh I think Isabel has my heart more, which is in part why I chose her to narrate the last book, because I Isabel's situation is a little bit more nuanced than Corzon's, because Isabel has a sister. So we, as readers, our hearts are with her for a couple of different reasons. 
and she has a sister who really needs her care and protection. Corzon's much more of a kind of an external character, and Isabel's a little bit more internal. Um, I originally had planned, and I'd love your opinion about this, Dean, I'd planned to make Ashes jumping back and forth between my two narrators, you know, set, you know, because you know both of them if you've read the other two books. Mm -hmm. But then over the past couple of years, as I've been speaking at schools, I would run that idea past the school kids I was talking to, and they, they would wrinkle their noses. And they're like, yeah, no, don't do that, lady. <laughs> Not that they didn't like either character, but many readers I spoke to, younger readers, that's a challenge for their skill set. And I thought that with the densely told story, there's a lot of information in these books, and there's some language that's a bit archaic. So they're already juggling a lot of new skills in the reading of this book, that if I threw on two narrators within one book, that might be asking a little bit too much. So I backed off, and only Isabel tells this story. Well, there you go again, what we talked about earlier. You have to know when to listen and what's going to work towards your goal when you're writing it. It's clear you hear from a lot of people, especially children who have such honest opinions, but they might not get exactly everything, why it works, why it doesn't work. I mean, you're not going to throw a vampire in there. <laughs> so you know, as much as one kid might like it, okay. It right. doesn't mean you tell them you're dumb or anything like that. You can encourage it. But yeah. it, that was something that I could see as I read it. And I'm sort of looking for the strings. And if I was reading this book, switching between viewpoint characters, Speaking of symbolism and things like that, you would have to do a lot of little things yeah. because you're not just going to announce, okay, you're in Isabel's head now. Right. You would have to probably do something like look down, smooth the dress, something like mm -hmm. that to remind. Exactly. I mean, a lot of authors of adult books, frankly, don't do it very well. And I always – that's one thing that will make me stop reading that and excessive speech tags. So, <laughs> yeah. You include a bunch of quotes yeah. from real historical figures like Abigail Adams. You can tell she's your favorite. You really like her. You include Thomas Paine in your book, some quotes from him. How do you go about compiling those? And as somebody who does read and research so much, I wonder if you had some you really wanted to include that you kind of save but don't put in. Well, as I'm researching, and I have boxes and boxes and countless computer files stuffed with research. Well, let me go back to Fever 1793, my first novel. That book was rejected 13 times because as a fairly new writer, as I was back then when I was trying to write that book, I thought that what you did when you were researching historical books is you put in every single historical detail, right? <laughs> Whether or not it furthered the scene. So I sent out this bloated manuscript that was so terrible and deserved every single rejection. <laughs> and then I went to a book festival and I listened to an author Anne Perry, mystery author who writes historical novels set in England in the Victorian period. And she said, you take out absolutely every historical detail except for the ones that you need to further the story. And I went, oh, I'm doing it completely wrong. <laughs> so I went back and stripped out all the fluff and then not surprisingly sold the book. And I was talking to my editor about, I have all these historical details. This is uh, my first editor, Kevin Lewis. And he said, well, why don't, you know, show me some of the quotes. And I showed him and he had the suggestion of opening up each chapter with a primary source quote that's somehow tied to the chapter. And so I've, whenever I've been reading ever since in turn in while researching, I'm always have an eye to a powerful quote and I probably have, you know, if there's 60 chapters in a book, I probably have 300 quotes to choose from, if not more. 
that's always getting switched up in the writing process because I have a different understanding of the chapter sometimes. So what do I want to emphasize? And it's really interesting because there's plenty of, of my younger readers who you just don't even pay attention to those, and that's fine. They don't have to read those quotes to understand the story. But for readers who are willing to step back and read what people were saying and writing in the time period, I, I think it adds something to the book. Part of your challenge you're speaking about with your point of view, and again, I'll go back to this idea of giving 10 bullet points of a list. I know I read one of those once in Writer's Digest or whatever it was, <laughs> maybe 25 years ago, and they said, well, never write as anybody that you're not. And it would be impossible to tell this story because nobody's been held in slavery. You could, I guess, somewhere like the Sudan, maybe, or in Afghanistan, but it would be, still be a different story. It still would be a different take on it. And we couldn't write any science fiction. So again, something you sort of develop a little bit of a muscle there and decide what you're going to take. It doesn't mean you don't take it seriously. In fact, it's more respect. You can be just as touched by a woman mentioned in passing in a letter that was a slave that you know is recorded nowhere as you could if you shared her skin color. That's not mm -hmm. a limiting factor. And you have the talent to do it. So why would you just continually tell the same stories about you? But it is a challenge. You're writing about characters who at best are treated as draft animals and as worse as objects. You've blogged at your website, madwomaninthefarest.com, about the critics who say somebody who's not African-American and doesn't have this experience shouldn't be writing from a slave point of view. So rather than ask you that question yet again, people can go to your blog and read it. I want to get back to your passion for inspiring children and teens. What's your advice for young readers like Madison? And mm -hmm. how did you develop this opinion to briefly touch on it or feeling that as important as it is to you, you're trying to tell a story and you just can't be limited by that? Um, I think that that statement that you should only write about your own experience is one that I disagree with completely. I think that we are called as human beings to seek out people and to try to understand them, right? And, and that's what art is for, is to open up our eyes and our hearts and our spirits to new experiences. I think that all over the world, we are mankind is suffering from people who are unwilling to open up and to learn about people who are different than they are for whatever reason. Having said that, you know, white people in America have a really, really bad history of appropriating other cultures and doing it badly and doing it without love and respect and without honor. And I talk about this often to audiences, largely white audiences of people who are trying to write for children. And I think that I'm very, very excited by the new voices that are coming into children's literature from lots of different marginalized groups. We need them. We need their stories. And those of us who are trying to write outside of our experience have a lot to learn from those folks. The most important thing is to learn is, is how to listen, how to listen deeply, how to not be defensive how to seek out authority when you don't have authority. And again, I'm I keep on coming back to this, but it's so critical to raise the standard of skill, of respect, and of dignity. That's what literature is all about, right? It's that human connection. So yeah, that's, I, I think you can. I think we should. I think we're all called to kind of get to know people who are not us. 
but we, it's different than when you're writing about somebody who's in your circumstance. My advice for young writers like Madison is pretty simple. First of all, read everything. I've never met a person who was a writer who hadn't been a reader first. And just read for fun. If it's not a classroom assignment, if a book's not grabbing you in 20 or 30 pages, take it back to the library. But figure out what you didn't like about it. I think sometimes I've learned more about writing by reading a book that's kind of a clunker in my eyes and figuring out what is the author doing that's not working for me as a reader. That can teach you quite a bit. And also, I didn't take the traditional path. I'm not a huge fan of MFA programs. I didn't study writing in college. I studied linguistics because I'm a big word nerd. I came out of college and became a journalist and a freelance writer. And from there, kind of staggered my way very, very slowly into the world of writing books. I had an awful lot to learn because I didn't have an academic background. But I think that young writers have to be aware that becoming a writer is not like becoming an engineer or a nurse. You don't go and take classes that will teach you and guarantee you a job on the other side. So you have to have plan B if you want to eat, if you ever want to move out of your parents' basement. The other advice that I have for young writers is that you need to leave the country as soon as possible. You need to get out of the world in which you grew up, preferably go to a country where you don't know the language so you can learn it. Because what you will learn about the world in that experience, and then what you will learn about yourself and your family and your community and your country when you come back home, gives you incredible material to write about. You talked about not writing strictly for that. And, and I'm sorry for the pause, but I get wrapped up in what you're saying. So it's great. <laughs> just like the writing. Yeah. Um, but it... It occurred to me the flip side, if it was 25 years ago, I finally have thought of the good response to that Writer's Digest piece. And that is, if you're not going to put anybody in your book that doesn't share your experience, why would you pick up a book that has somebody on the cover that doesn't look like you? Why would you even pick up Hamlet? If we want to talk about the ones that, as you said, they tried to beat into your head. Well, I'm not a prince or anything. So why would I even pick it up? So that occurs to me that that's kind of the flip side of that. And it doesn't mean it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for learning somebody's experience. It doesn't matter what color you are. If you're writing for somebody with another experience Mm -hmm. that you can just put in a stereotype or what have you, and we all have those for all sorts of things, but it just means that's part of the work. And again, muscles, I think that's a good analogy, even though it's mine, that you have to work those. You You have to learn what you do. And I mentioned before two things that turn me off to a book. Well, then when I'm writing, I don't do that. Right. You know, I don't add a million speech tags. Yeah. Even just when you're IMing and texting, I know a lot of young people today, that's how they communicate. You have to develop a skill and a, an eye that if you even see that you've spelt something wrong in a text, you want to fix it. Mm-hmm. It's, it has to be that repellent that you're always finding a way to work and make yourself a better writer. So that's my two cents. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I'm, I, my kids tease me about how my spelling in, in my text messages, but it's a big deal. It's important because yep. it has to jump out of you. It has to offend you on some level. My, <laughs> my, my, and I don't, I don't mean in the, oh my gosh, you called me a mean name offense. Right, but, right, right. But, oh no, that's wrong. That yeah. Must be. Like my dad was a mechanic for Ford for a long time before he went to sales. And he said, I can't run a car low on oil. 
Yeah. If I see the light come on, even if it's a rental, somebody else's yeah. car and I'm taking it back, it just, it bothers me. And I always use that as an example. It has to, it has to bother you if you write a bad sentence or you don't look at the verbs in your messages and say, I can do that better and make it funnier. Even if it's just to a friend, mm-hmm. you know, like I can do that better. So that would be mine. Again, my advice is two cents. Yours was the $2 version. No, so stop. there we go. <laughs> You've given very generously of your time. And of course, this is a trilogy. It has concluded. But the last question I wanted to ask for those of us who do get to the last page there of Ashes and wish we could see more, what is up next? I know we'll have to wait some years to get it because you'll be busy digging through quotes and enjoying your journey. But what is up next for you? Yeah, who knows? Um, I leave on book tour (laughs) on Monday. So I will do absolutely. I'm going to try to do a little bit of writing on the road this time because I've got so much travel coming up the next year. If I don't figure out how to write while I'm traveling, then I'm never going to get another book done. I am playing with some historical ideas. I suspect that the next book that I write is going to be one of my contemporary YAs, so there was not quite as much research involved. But I come from a family that lives a really long time. So you're going to see many, many more books from me. And there's a lot of American history that needs unpacking. Good stories written about it so that we can look at our truths, look at our history with open eyes, and help us understand how to make America into the country that we promised ourselves it would be. And I think it's great. You're always still improving and learning new skills. Also, another piece of advice that I picked up from a writer along the way, and Frank McCourt said it very well. They asked him where he writes, and he said, uh, at home, in the bathroom, the subway, plane, <laughs> yeah. bar, wherever I am. And so another good piece of advice, I think people will learn so much, not just from reading your books, but hopefully listening to you today. And that is, if you have to wait for that perfect moment in the quiet and the sun and the birds have to be singing the right song, you're not going to get it done. So right. challenge yourself. If you write on the worst day to write when you're sick and have a cold and the radio's blasting in the apartment downstairs, then I always tell myself there's no day that I won't write. That's right. Lori Holtz Anderson, author of the Seeds of America trilogy. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for giving voice to the fictional characters that speak for the very real experiences of our forebears during the revolution. And they are all our forebears, regardless of color. So let's pick up the story and share it. Best of luck with all three books and on your book tour. Thank you, kind sir. And thank you very much to all your (laughs) listeners who have tuned in. I really, really appreciate your support. Have a great day. Again, the books are Chains, Forge, and Ashes. Together, they make up the Seeds of America trilogy. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copies at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost to you. Doesn't even cost you a continental, as they used to say. Listeners just learning about the books can purchase all three together in a box set. Makes a great gift, and it doesn't require batteries or chasing Pokemon into the street. Thank you to Madison for the questions today. And of course, many thanks to Lori Holtz Anderson for joining us and for hooking a whole new generation of readers on the wonders and benefits of history. Please visit her at madwomanintheforest.com, and while you're there, navigate through to all of her social media accounts. You can let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. 
That's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next Monday for an all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. This episode of the History Author Show is dedicated to Malvina, who's remembered only by her yellow turban, a woman born into slavery, who nonetheless helped George Washington and the Patriot Army at Valley Forge fight for the liberty that she wasn't able to enjoy herself.